You're listening to On the Road, Our Way, the archive of the podcast formerly known as Women on the Road from 2017 to 2020, hosted and produced by Laura Borshevsky and a production of Rabble Media. Hey there, Laura here. Before we jump in, we wanted to give you a quick update since this episode's original air date with some additional thoughts and learnings that will hopefully help you as the listener set some important context as well as see how we are all growing when it comes to having effective conversations in anti-racism work. It was brought to our attention by a member of our community, Gabacha, whose voice we've gotten to hear a little bit of on the show in the past, that some of the conversations Jamie and I hold in this episode around Minute 14, where we discuss photography and the sharing of photographers' time and expertise, especially to aid in success on social media, has some major tones of assimilation, and it's something that we wanted to address. For those who aren't aware, assimilation in this context refers to the way those with white privilege use that power to set a standard for how things should look or operate and impose those standards on everyone. This is harmful to marginalized groups because it erases culture and equates success with whiteness. We want to clarify that while it's great to share resources and support photographers if you yourself have the skills and resources to do so, we in no way want to imply that the way white travelers have been sharing photos online is the right or successful way or that they should be encouraging anyone else, especially Black travelers and folks in other marginalized groups, to assimilate to their style of imagery. We really can't thank Abacha enough for bringing this to our attention, and hope it helps you gain a deeper understanding and more productive learning in the realm of anti-racism work, both on and off the road. Okay, that's all for now. Here's the show. This episode of Women on the Road is brought to you by Danner Boots. At Danner, they believe in the quality of their footwear, And Danner's Trail 2650 hikers are made with the company's tried-and-true standard for durability and comfort. Inspired by and named for the 2,650-mile Pacific Crest Trail, these versatile trainers are built to keep you moving quickly and confidently through any terrain. Crafted with lightweight materials meant to withstand tough conditions, they provide traction and stability on uneven ground. A foam midsole cushions the foot and maintains a light load, while the outsole offers confidence-inspiring grip for every step in any condition. Available with breathable mesh lining or waterproof Gore-Tex, the Trail 2650 is up for a variety of landscapes. Whether hitting the trail or strolling through town, these shoes are ready for the rigors and rewards of your next adventure, whenever the timing's right. Learn more at danner.com. That's D-A-N-N-E-R.com. Allyship is not a finish line. It is a constant daily practice. You don't take this step, that step, that step, and you're an ally. You are always learning. You're always unlearning. But it's a constant, never-ending process. I'm Laura Borshevsky, and you're listening to Women on the Road, a podcast to bring you closer to some of the honest experiences that life on the road has to offer from the perspective of women who've lived them firsthand. And specifically in this episode... We're talking about some of the spaces where white women, racism, and van life intersect. It's critical to start off this show by being totally upfront about what this episode is and is not. This episode does not center Black women, nor is this episode a stand-in for reading a book or looking to other resources by Black authors and researchers. We have ample links in our show notes that will take you to resources we mentioned during this conversation, plus more related content generated by Black women and women of color, and we encourage you to follow them, learn from their work, and pay them for their time. You'll also hear in this episode that we use the gender term women often. And while this is the same word we use in the title of our show, it's important to call out that in this interview, we don't dig into any considerations specifically related to the LGBTQIA and Two-Spirit communities. Just wanted to make sure that that was clear before we got going. What this episode is, is a conversation held by two white women, 
Jamie Serbell, who works with Naomi Grevenberg on Diversify Van Life and also leads conversations through the Diversify Van Life Book Club, and myself, where we spend time addressing topics related to anti-racism within the modern van life movement, why it's been so tough to see positive change in this community, and what White Women Travelers' collective role is in all of this. Also, just in case anyone's wondering, Jamie and I aren't experts by any means, and honestly, it feels uncomfortable taking up space at this moment in time. But as we've seen and hopefully learned, silence is not the only thing required of us when it comes to anti-racism work. We also need to learn to speak to these issues within our communities at the appropriate time. Because of that, you'll hear more of me in this episode than normal too. It felt important to speak up about racism in this community at this moment in time because Women on the Road is a community I've been ultimately responsible for since our media group launched this podcast in 2017. And while it's been incredible to watch the community grow in size, it has also become glaringly obvious to me that we as a collective are missing the mark when it comes to being prepared to address racial injustices and ultimately create a community where everyone is truly welcome. I've said it on the show before, but I haven't said it clearly enough. The truth is, as white women on the road, we've taken up a lot of space. And intentionally or not, we've set social standards for what qualifies as van life, when this was a movement long before our time spanning all communities and economic brackets. Now it's something white women have found success in at the expense of others' voices, especially those in marginalized groups, and especially black women. I'm not saying all this to be inflammatory, but it felt right to let you know where this episode is going before jumping in. I can imagine that some folks listening to this episode are going to want to tune out the conversation or disregard some of what's discussed here as a personal attack. But after interacting with the Women on the Road community and the greater van life community as a whole in these past weeks and months, it feels like there is a lot of work to do when it comes to understanding how we as a group can make an impact on justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the road travel space. And if you're willing, I'd like to be part of a community where we do this together. So first things first, let's talk about van life as a whole. Starting things off, you'll hear my voice as we dive into a conversation with Jamie about this online travel movement and the challenges inherent when escapism meets privilege. I think setting some of the context just for like talking about van life is really important. Something I've been talking a lot about on Women on the Road lately, as I personally have been reflecting on perhaps why it is that it's been challenging to have this conversation among the road travel community, is that concept of escapism. And I think it's something that is a common tie between a lot of folks who do road travel, no matter how you do it, that if you don't like where you are, you can leave, whether that's like a place or around, you know, in a neighborhood or, you know, with a group of people, like you can just leave if you don't like it or if the weather's bad even. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that until we start applying that same concept to how we tackle really challenging issues, especially when it comes to talking about systemic racism. And I posted about it recently when I was on Instagram the other day through the Women on the Road community. There was a pretty big response to it. And I was actually a little bit surprised at how many people did resonate with the concept that, you know, if we're practicing and honestly excited to escape from other aspects of our life that challenge us by going on the road, when we think about things that challenge us, it it can also be conversations. And so 
that's something that I've noticed with van life in general and with road travel in general that I think a lot of folks who want to just leave situations that are tough and especially folks who have white privilege where it is inherently uncomfortable to talk about race. It's easy for everybody to say they want to escape from talking about these conversations, but especially for folks who are used to having the privilege to be able to just escape and um, not think about it anymore. And I also think that to that end, I had a couple of folks also ask about like, is this actually a thing? Like, are people actually going on the road to escape having conversations about racism? And I want to be clear that like, that's not at all what I'm talking about. I think that a lot of folks who especially are white travelers just don't even think about the fact that they're escaping. And that in itself is such a privilege. The fact that folks can tune in and tune out when they want to is a privilege. So, you know, I'm excited to talk with you more about ways that we can all think about learning and practicing allyship in a way that's sustainable and for the long term. I know we'll spend some time in this episode talking about that. But when it comes to the van life community, yeah, keeping an eye on the fact that, like, of course, you know, a lot of folks want to evade conversations that are challenging. But when it comes to doing anti-racism work, it's a privilege to even consider the fact that you can. And so being intentional about staying in that work is really important. I agree that I don't really think there's anyone that's like, I don't want to have these tough conversations, so I'm going to hit the road. But you definitely have the privilege of, like, choosing to travel to more liberal areas or if you are traveling in an area that might have more white supremacy ingrained in it if you're white you're not sitting there going like I'm not safe in this area like there was a caravan of people last year I believe that were traveling through some areas in the south and they were like anyone's welcome like the typical we welcome everyone come with us type of thing and it's like okay, but if you're Black, like, you're really not going to be camping out in these areas. (laughs) That's such a good point. Yeah, the places that we travel to and through definitely are a reflection of, typically for folks, like, where they're comfortable being. And I think really critically assessing why that is, is so important. And why other folks, especially Black folks, might not feel comfortable going through those spaces. So when you travel around and you're like, wow, there's a lot of white people who travel on the road and, you know, black people just must not travel in vans. That's not true. There are historical reasons why it's been less safe and is still less safe for black folks to travel than white individuals. But that said, maybe consider the fact that you're also, like you said, Jamie, traveling through areas that are attracting white travelers for a reason. And typically that reason is that there's something about the region you're passing through that's not as safe for black travelers. So you really are creating your own reality of who's traveling and who's not by where you're putting yourself. We say and see that road travelers are a part of a welcoming community. But the reality is that when you look online, there are a lot of perceived barriers to entry, perpetuated oftentimes by folks with privilege, especially when it comes to what vehicle you drive or what it looks like. And while it's not a form of racism, it is a form of classism. And because it's something that comes into play often within this community, Jamie's pretty passionate about shining a light on this part of the online van life movement. I definitely think primarily due to Instagram and maybe also sort of YouTube because, you know, the more nicer things you can afford, the more attractive things you can put out there, including like the camera you can afford and this and that. But on social media, we see a lot of the sprinter vans, the ProMasters, this and that. There are people who some consider to be leaders in the community that like to claim that 
the average price that people spend on their van and their van build is $25,000 to $50,000. And that $15,000 is like a really cheap, tight budget. And myself and my husband, John, we throw the Midwest Van Life Gathering. And if you came to join us at that, you would see that those statistics do not match up at all. There's so many people in this community. Like John and I uh, got our van, did some mechanical work and built it out for $10,000. And we're constantly telling people that like almost broke our budget. That was on the extreme high end. We feel like that's expensive. Like we constantly sort of get into like tiffs with people in the community of like, just because you spent $20,000 on your situation when there are people out there that spend $120,000 on their situation does not mean that yours is cheap. Um, I'm pretty sure an analogy I used with you the other day is if I'm looking to buy a dress and like there's a lot of dresses out there that I saw that are $50,000, but I get a dress for $5,000 and I tell my friends and family, isn't this dress great? I got it so cheap. It's $5,000. And they all shop at Target and Kohl's and TJ Maxx and stuff like that. They're going to look at me like that is ridiculous for saying that my dress is cheap for $5,000. So just because in comparison to other things, it sounds cheap does not mean it in itself is cheap. There's so many people in this community that we've personally met and talked to many people in this community that have gotten their van and built it out and hit the road under $5,000 easily. There's so many people that are doing this on a shoestring budget and it's totally doable. And there are some people in the community with blogs and websites too that have come out with like different graphs or articles that are like choosing your own van. And it's like, here's the best like affordable option. And it's literally like an $18,000 van without the build. (laughs) And it's like, that's not cheap. That is not cheap. Like you don't need to pay monthly payments on your vehicle. (laughs) Yeah, I think that high barrier to entry for being a quote van lifer or, you know, doing road travel the quote right way or the way that's going to catch attention on social media, that high barrier to entry is a huge thing. And I think that, you know, because Instagram has pushed forward the hashtag van life movement that there's some obvious comparison of what things look like and something that on top of what your vehicle looks like which you're right like there's so many people who are doing road travel who are not buying really expensive vans that happens to be an image that has been picked up by all of us that all of us have participated in uplifting on social media platforms and elsewhere. And we've all kind of perpetuated this image of this is, you know, what we should be holding up as the expectation. And upon some reflection, I hadn't thought about this before until we decided that we were going to have this conversation. But white women have also helped to perpetuate that image by being the model in the van. And it's great to take photos while you're traveling. Um, And I'm by no means saying that folks should be, you know, hiding themselves away while they're on the road. I think that it's great that you want to capture pictures that are going to be memories from your time while you're out traveling on the road. That said, I also want to recognize, you know, I don't know about anyone else who's listening, but for me, when I look through the Discover page or I'm looking at, you know, hashtag van life and seeing what recent or top posts are there, a lot of them are exactly what you're saying, Jamie, like this specific type of van built out a specific way for a specific dollar amount and usually a white lady sitting in it and usually a seemingly white, able-bodied, relatively thin lady. And 
I couldn't help but think about how much space we as white women have taken up in deciding and showing what van life is, you know, supposed to look like. And I say that with air quotes, of course. And I think there's a lot that we can do about that. You know, oftentimes folks blame the algorithm for, well, this is just what Instagram decided is cool. And that's not true. I think we've all seen, especially recently, that we collectively have the power to change that. And it it really does take an effort, but it is something that we do have control over to a degree. Yeah. And I do think so one way, like, in my opinion, that we could sort of like, hijack the algorithm or whatever is like a like we don't need to do such staged fancy photos or like b let's maybe make some more presets available for free for other people who don't have this like elaborate technology to make their photos look a certain way because that's a big thing is that people are going for this specific look the lighting needs to be perfect this needs to be set up perfect this and this and this like I think we need to get a little more comfortable with let's share some more like reality and not such and and I'm guilty of this too so many of our photos are specifically staged I'm gonna sit like this that looks like a mess let's get that out of here etc etc because again not everyone has the privilege of their rig always looking a specific way 24-7 or the lighting always being a right way or having the means to have all the right technological pieces to form this specific look that I feel like we see everywhere. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I would be surprised if most people that we know online, like myself included, haven't staged at least one photo that's living on their van travel account. I think a lot of photos are staged. And while as a photographer, like that's fine. Like there that's in no way like an issue if you're, you know, making sure that you want to create a photo that you want to share and that you're proud of. That's fine. Also recognize like Jamie said like that is a complete privilege that you have the time to do that and that you have the knowledge as a photographer or the time to learn how to do that. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple different ways that folks can get more engaged in trying to bring, I guess, more equity into like the Instagram world of what van life is. You know, we can share, like you said, more information about how to get photos that Instagram just latches onto and that people who, you know, are maybe even outside of like the more insular van life community are going to want to see that will end up on a discover page. Like spreading the wealth in that way is spreading like knowledge and information and working with people one-on-one. Like if you're a photographer and you see folks who are like striving to do more photography and especially if you want to help like distribute some of that like wealth of knowledge to black folks who are out traveling, yeah, offer to work with them for free. I think that that's a great use of somebody's knowledge, especially if your intention is to do more anti-racism work through travel and photography. That's great, share information. I think something else that every single person can do is just engage with photos on accounts that have black travelers who are running them. Black-owned accounts haven't been getting the attention that they deserve on Instagram because we haven't been engaging with them as white people. And I think that that's something that anybody can make a difference in at any point in time. You know, we had this whole week where people are sharing all these accounts. I know Women on the Road shared over like 20 accounts, some of them that we had just found, but a lot that we'd been following for a while that haven't had the followership that other accounts that are white-owned had that are producing the same quality content. (laughs) Like, okay, great. You followed those accounts. That's awesome. If you want to see those accounts in your feed and you want to see them get the attention that they deserve, like make sure you engage with them on a regular basis. Turn on notifications or if you engage with them a lot, it is going to pop up more so you will see it more. I think that's something that anybody can do. 
Yeah, and two things I want to add to that, like, yes, absolutely, like, that is a great free way to support people, like their stuff, comment on their stuff, share their stuff, etc. But I also want to make a point that, like, if you do those things, that's not just, okay, I'm anti-racist now, like, I'm liking and commenting on things, and now I did my work, I'm done. Like, there's a lot more work past that, but that is, like, a very simple, free way to help support people. And then I was also going to say... I know that I'm mildly guilty of it just because I'm seeing a lot of new exciting stuff. But when you go on these frenzies of adding all of these new black travelers and whoever to like, oh, wow, this sounds like a cool account. I'm going to follow that. I'm going to follow that. I'm going to follow that. Keep in mind that when you do see their stuff, you are there to be supportive, not to police. So if they say something that you disagree with, you are not in their space to tell them how to talk, how to unpack their own things, how to speak, anything like that. Like you are not there to tell them what to do. You are there to support and to listen. Jamie also has some thoughts to share when it comes to how we can be more actively anti-racist when we get off of our screens and start meeting in person, especially in larger group gatherings. It might be sort of hard to connect with this right now since we're in the middle of a pandemic, but at some point we will be at a spot where we're back to these van life gatherings happening. And this is a very large way that we've seen people capitalize on our community. And there are a lot of people that like to promote, you know, our event is for everyone. Everyone's welcome here. We accept everyone, et cetera, et cetera. And a way that you can really make that possible for Black people and also other people of color in the van life community is a variety of things that you could do with your pricing. Like, yeah, you can totally do early bird pricing, but don't jack up your pricing at the last minute. We personally have done that, and it was brought to our attention that that really like limits people who are making these last minute decisions of wanting, maybe they've been waiting for that last minute request off work and they've been saving up, but now we jacked it up $10 or whatever. So avoid doing that if you run it, or if you are really excited about an event, you see that they do this, maybe bring it to their attention. And then also maybe offering some sort of scholarship or some way that people could get a discounted rate so that if they do want to attend, but their finances are in a certain situation, this makes it a way so that people in the community have more accessibility in regards to attending. Um, and I guess that's not just with race, but I, I definitely think that we should just have scholarships for Black people and people of color in our community to attend these events in the first place. But that's just me. Jamie also wanted to add that more than just inviting Black, Indigenous, and people of color to events, hire them to speak in discussions, lead workshops, and more. Our own team has also been learning these past few years that if you are telling folks in marginalized groups that you want to host them at your event, to make sure the event is actually meant for them too. Not taking the time to make your event a safer and more inclusive space, but encouraging all folks to come, is creating a harmful situation. There's a lot to learn when it comes to making your events more inclusive, so we encourage anyone in this situation to please dedicate money to hiring consultants who are in the BIPOC and LGBTQIA and Two-Spirit communities to help you. Okay. We've covered a lot, but there's still more to come. So sit tight, and we'll be right back after this. We all know what it's like to be inspired by the landscape around us, and few trails stand out in North America like the Pacific Crest Trail. With 2,650 miles, the Pacific Crest Trail provides a wide variety of terrain over its epic landscape. And when we're in front of ever-changing trails, you need your shoes to be able to step up to the challenge. It's that need for versatility that inspired Danner's new hiking shoe, the Trail 2650. 
Built to move quickly and confidently through the terrain of your choosing, the Trail 2650 can easily fill the role of a lightweight hiker or trainer. For Danner, this meant looking to lightweight materials that could withstand the demands of the trail, while still keeping comfort and stability in mind. Whether you're out for a day hike, going on a backpacking trip, or simply navigating some technical terrain. Feeling stable when you're hiking allows you to focus on the world around you. Whenever the timing's right to get back out there, you want to be ready to say yes to adventure. The Trail 2650 keeps shifting weather conditions in mind, which is why it comes with a lightweight mesh lining or a waterproof, breathable Gore-Tex option. So keep your eyes focused on that next trek ahead of you, knowing that the foundation you need to get out there can be found on your own two feet. The rest is up to you. To find out more and see the Women's Trail 2650 series, visit danner.com. That's D-A-N-N-E-R.com. Here's the truth. Mental health can be more difficult to manage on the road or in light of recent events. Fortunately, no matter where you are right now, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Thanks to their online interface, you can connect with your professional counselor by scheduling secure video and phone sessions in a safe and private online environment, meaning that you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can even chat and text with them too. I tried BetterHelp this past season after feeling alone as I worked through some major life changes. And because access to a therapist was limited, going to a counselor in person just wasn't an option for me. This was all a great fit for BetterHelp. After signing up, I was connected with a licensed professional counselor and was communicating with them in less than 24 hours to chat about my struggles and goals for therapy in a confidential online setting. BetterHelp has over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states who specialize in topics like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, and self-esteem. And you can customize your needs to get the best therapist fit for you. Getting started with counseling can feel scary, but it's really something that can help. And with BetterHelp, which takes affordability into consideration, you can get started today, even if you don't have an insurance plan that covers mental health services. Women on the Road listeners can get 10% off your first month with discount code ROAD. To get started, go to betterhelp.com road. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love so you can start feeling better inside out. Visit betterhelp.com road and use promo code ROAD for 10% off. We're back. And something we haven't often talked about directly in this community is the concept of intersectionality, essentially when two or more marginalized identities merge. For straight white women, intersectionality probably doesn't come into play as often for you. But this is a really crucial topic for the women on the road community to center whenever possible, because it's key to creating a more inclusive space where Black women, Indigenous women, and women of color feel safer and more included. Jamie and I spent some time talking about intersectionality in the vein of how we've seen conversations take place online, and how even with the kindest intentions, ignoring intersectionality is incredibly harmful. One thing that I've noticed a lot as I've been navigating conversations with this community, which is predominantly white women, which is why this is so relevant, is really that when there have been opportunities for learning, when black women and women of color have stepped up um, into the women on the road community and said, hey, I've experienced microaggressions. Here's what that looks like. Here's what that's felt like. Or I've experienced X, Y, or Z, um, and I want to share about it, especially you know when it is very relevant to road travel and trying to make a connection with the community or encourage learning or just share. One of the most common responses that I've seen from a lot of the white women in this community is, wow, I totally understand how you feel because I've experienced mansplaining or forms of sexism. Uh, 
And as a white woman, I can see the intent is to make a connection and to use empathy. And while that intent is very clear to me and to a lot of other people who might be reading, especially people who are white, the impact of that can be really harmful because the reality is that experiencing sexism as a white woman is extremely different from experiencing sexism as a black woman or a woman of color who's out there traveling or not traveling. As white women, we're just never going to understand what that's like. That's an intersectional experience that also, of course, has racism come into play too. So the reality is we can always do our best to empathize in our own process of like, wow, what would that feel like? Well, the closest experience I've had would be like this, but also I don't know what it feels like to not be white. I also understand when people have these good intentions, but they still might do some damage. And an analogy I use frequently is like, let's say you step on someone's foot and you break it. That was obviously not your intention. You were just walking around not paying attention. So you didn't intend to step on their foot and break it. But the reality is, is that it's broken. And it was your actions that broke it. So even though you have this heart of gold, you have done damage. And so we just really need to be mindful of our heart may be in the right place, but we're going to mess up, we're going to hurt people, we're going to cause damage. And we need to learn to take responsibility. We need to learn to apologize efficiently. And we need to learn what steps we can take so that we're not having to make that apology again because we're not doing that impact anymore. Yeah, and spending that time focusing when there has been damage done, spending time defending your previous actions or saying, but I have a heart of gold, but my heart was in the right place, and now this hurts my feelings that I've hurt you, is really belaboring the process. I appreciate that you said efficient apologies, because there are ways to, and I know that through Diversify Van Life, Naomi and yourself created some content that we'll share in our show notes about what an efficient apology looks like and how to proactively move forward. So yeah, efficient is definitely a key word in that. Yeah, and definitely like the first most important step of the apology is like outright saying what you did wrong. Like, it's very easy for us to just fall into these vague blanketed apologies. But unless we like internally unpack and then verbally express what specific harm that we caused, then it's almost an empty apology, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think, too, back to what we were talking about, like, if you have experienced any form of sexism, like, you do have some empathy for what it feels like to be discriminated against in some way. I think making the very clear distinction that it is not at all the same as experiencing racism is the most important thing you can do. And use that as fuel, not to say, okay, I'm going to center myself and talk about my experience with that, meaning that these are the same and that I get your feelings, but rather to say, okay, I've experienced something that like that's maybe the closest thing that I'll ever be able to experience in that knowing that I have white privilege. So how can I use that to further my education so that I can make sure that there's less racism in the world? How can I work on being less racist? How can I help support black women who are sharing their experiences of racism on the road? Can I jump into comments? Can I donate somewhere? Like use it as fuel so that you can move forward um, instead of saying, okay, I know what this is like and I'm going to talk about it too because the reality is that they're not the same. And the sooner more of us recognize that, the more good we can actually all strive to do. Right. I was totally going to say that I think, well, we as white people, honestly, we don't like feeling uncomfortable, especially in regards to race. And 
when we're trying to relate with, let's say specifically, when we're trying to relate with Black women and they're telling us about their systemic hardships that they're going through, we don't like being uncomfortable when it talks to race. So we instantly go from, I can't handle the reality of how uncomfortable this is to, since I'm uncomfortable, how can I make this where... I can relate to it. So then it's less uncomfortable because I understand I can relate to it. Um, And I think a huge like misunderstanding here is that like, yes, white women experience sexism and yes, black women experience sexism, but white women don't experience the racism also, which is also a totally different aspect of it. Like, you know, frustrated white woman is empowered, whereas a frustrated black woman is angry. So we act like we have these relatabilities. Oh, you have sexism. I have sexism too. And it's like, they have sexism and racism. And I feel like it's also pretty difficult to just detach those things. Because when you live in black skin, you don't get to detach from racism, I feel like. Yeah, well, and, you know, to that end, too, I've also seen a lot of commentary from white women and white women within our community saying when it comes to the unique struggles that black women face, you know, I've I've seen the response of like all women are in this together. We're all going to, you know, get through this together and all of our, our issues are the same. And I think we just underline that like they're not that we don't even begin to understand what it's like to be black women. And those types of comments are also hurtful and they're they're undermining and they very much do erase color and erase people's experiences by saying that. So if that's something that you're tempted to say, think about why you're saying it. And I would guess it's because you're uncomfortable and you would like to see this conversation go away. The reality is that talking about racism is always uncomfortable for everybody because there are a lot of hurt feelings involved for a long, long time and a lot of trauma affecting real people and families and communities. And so, of course, it's always going to be uncomfortable. But saying that all of our issues are the same or we're all going to get through this together because we're all women is not helping that conversation to move forward in any way. Yeah, and I think a great analogy I recently heard that plays in with that is, so we're all women, we're all in this together. A better way of looking at it is we're all in the same storm, but we all have different boats. So there might be a totally similar storm going on at sea, but some of us are in a yacht with our own professional chef in our private bedroom, whereas some of us are in a canoe filled with holes. So yes, we do see some similarities to an extent, but we are also at the same time in very separate situations. Anti-racism work is continually going to require that you sit in discomfort, especially when you have white privilege. So acknowledging that it is not a walk in the park and it's also something that requires a lot of your own self-reflection is something that you need to recognize. And I think what a lot of folks maybe haven't been saying because it really isn't the right platform to to say like publicly, like here's my feelings about, you know, how I'm processing my anti-racism work and like, you know, I'm feeling sad or frustrated or anything like that. Like we don't need more white guilt or white tears out in the world. We need to be listening to black females, black female travelers, black individuals in general. 
And so it is important to still recognize and process your feelings or you're not going to be able to get through to actually accepting some of the realities of what it takes to be involved in anti-racism work and to practice allyship. Even just for folks who live in the States, relearning history of the United States, it can be very striking in a very sad or scary way. Acknowledging that so you can accept it, like that takes a lot. Is it proper to be processing that out in a public forum or jumping into the direct messages or the email inboxes of black individuals that you're learning from and saying, here's what processing this has meant to me. It's not. <laughs> that's that's not the space to do it. But finding other folks who do have the same privileges that you have, who are committed to learning, is a space that you can get that started with. And I know you had more thoughts about that, Jamie. I definitely think it's important to find other white people who are taking these anti-racism steps that you can like connect with and sort of unpack with similar people. But I also think it's really important that in these groups, you are connecting with people that are also challenging you because we can get really comfortable in this sort of echo chamber of like, I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm uncomfortable with this too. Let's just keep talking about how uncomfortable we are and not keep doing anything. Like you need to make sure that you're also surrounding yourself with people in these groups that are like, okay, well, now that we've been uncomfortable for a minute, what are we going to do now? How do we move forward? And there was a little note that I wanted to make. You were talking about relearning American history. And I also just wanted to make a quick little note that like when you do that, do your best to make sure that you're learning this history from Black authors, researchers, etc., and also Indigenous writers. I think a lot of history we have learned today has been written by these white authors and has been extremely whitewashed, like Columbus found America, which I hope we all know is sort of bogus. Um, but yeah, so just in regards to relearning history, I definitely think it's important that we are reading from the perspectives of Black and Indigenous writers. I'm super glad that you said that. And just remembering that when we're learning yeah, any kind of U.S. history, that if it is coming from white authors or white creators, that we just need to recognize like it is written by the oppressor, like the historical and present day oppressor in our country. And so knowing context when you're reading things is extremely important to understanding what actually has happened and what still happens today. So I know that something else that you have had a lot of practice with are different forms of meditation. And I'm curious to know if you want to share anything about that and how that has helped or could help somebody with processing this work that they're doing in anti-racism and practicing allyship and, and you know, how it's helped. So my husband and I, we sit these 10-day Vipassana meditation courses. And the first three whole days of the course, you sit through and learn this meditation technique called Anapana. And anyone can do it. It's very simple. You just observe the breath. So it's no specific breathing technique. It's not in for, out for, whatever. You just pay close attention to your nostrils. Don't breathe through your mouth, only breathe through your nose. And just pay attention to the sensations there, the air going in, the air going out, any tickling or tingling, hot, cold, whatever it might be. Just observe the sensations as your breath naturally goes in and out. And it's actually a very strong grounding technique. And anytime I get into uncomfortable conversations, confrontational conversations, basically any situation where the heart is racing, you're really uncomfortable, you're feeling challenged, maybe whatever, I turn to Anapana. 
but basically just observing. So the Anapana technique of just focusing on your breath naturally as it is just under your nostrils and any sensations that arise, it's very grounding and helps you work through these really strong emotions that will almost non-arguably you will experience as you continue to do this work. I appreciate you bringing up such a simple technique for breathing and observing because the reality is exactly what you said. As we all go through this work, not only is it uncomfortable, but there are levels of confrontation that will happen, whether it's something you recognize in yourself or it's a one-on-one or a group confrontation of some kind. Like There is inherent discomfort and confrontation in this work because we are dismantling an extremely oppressive system of racism that's upheld by white supremacy. And being white and having white privilege, like that also has its own unique perspective to it. So, you know, learning how to take a pause and learning how to navigate feedback and just what happens in your body instead of, you know, doing rapid fire responses online or, you know, going off on somebody when maybe you needed to take just even a few minutes um, or it could be a few days, but maybe even just a few minutes to slow yourself and then process before responding it helps to move everybody's learning forward instead of getting caught in these cycles of defensiveness and argumentation when maybe in reality there's just some learning that needs to happen there first and that takes at least a couple minutes. Yeah, I was also going to add to that. So when doing this work, like you will be challenged and it is just an instinct to become defensive. And so instead of like how I call holistically hearing someone, which means like you hear their words, but you deeply understand the meaning. And, you know, if you're verbally speaking with someone, you take tone into that too. Oh, wow, they're hurting while they say this. I need to hear that too. But let's say you're talking to someone, you know, online via email, social media, whatever the case may be, your DMs, and you get this heavy defensiveness and everything like what my husband and I do like nine times out of 10 is we do a vent response is what we say. So we'll pull up Google Docs or whatever, and we'll vent out our response. And then we'll give it a couple minutes, a couple hours, sometimes a couple days, and then we'll go back to it and we'll revise so that we say exactly what we want to say, but we take out maybe a couple cuss words or, <laughs> or, or sentences that are like very unnecessary. We could get the point across without being so reactive. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that because that's part of processing. Like that's very tangible in a way, even though it's all digital and also being on the receiving end of feedback too. You know, there is time that feedback is delivered to you. And especially when it's about racism, where it feels personal, I would definitely encourage folks, you know, if you've made a mistake and someone addresses the fact that you've made a mistake, it's not a personal judgment. I think a lot of times it's easy to interpret things that are said as personal judgments. That's part of defensiveness so that you can say, this was wrong and now I'm hurt by this. And so I'm going to ignore this feedback and the validity perhaps of what you're saying because you have personally attacked me. To take that away for a moment and say, okay, my initial gut reaction is to take this and victimize myself by it. But how can I actually learn from this? And what if this person isn't making a personal judgment 
against me? What are they trying to say? And honestly, if you're struggling with feedback or if you feel instantly triggered by feedback that someone's giving you, play devil's advocate with yourself and say, okay, what are the other perspectives that I may not be considering here and move forward? And I want to also say that is specifically for white folks. You know, when we're talking about racism, this is this is not about, you know, anything other than that. There is definitely a lot of online harassment that happens and there are a lot of racist comments that get thrown around. So I wanted to clarify that that is specifically for folks with white privilege who are receiving feedback um, online and trying to hold conversations about racism and anti-racism over the internet, which is also a difficult place to do that, but also an effective one if we use it as a tool for communication. Yeah. And I did want to add to that. We've been running into this a lot, specifically recently, is there is a difference between criticism and attacking someone. And I definitely feel like white people in regards to race aren't used to receiving criticism. And Robin D'Angelo talks on this in her book, White Fragility, where it's especially difficult for us to accept criticism when talking about race because we inherently see ourselves as good. So when someone tells us, hey, you're being abusive, what you said, you know, hurt people or whatever the case may be, we don't hear criticism. We hear a personal attack on our being because we inherently view ourselves as good. Something else that I know I was really curious to hear you speak a little bit more to that I think is in the same vein of communication is a concept about spiritual bypassing and how that shows up, especially with white women. And so I was curious if you wanted to start that off. Yeah, so it's really common in white, primarily female situations. I mean, you see it a lot in the yoga world and stuff like that, but also I've seen it in white women in the van life community where they don't want any negativity. I just accept positivity into my life. And, you know, why fill our souls with this negativity sort of shenanigans, in my opinion. And it's called spiritual bypassing. So it's it's almost like gaslighting. It negates the experiences of others. And I think we've seen that recently on some Black women's posts in the van life community of people saying things along the lines of like, well, I just want positivity, so I'm not going to follow you anymore or something like that. And I believe Rachel Cargill says it best where she says, I don't want your love and light unless it comes with solidarity and action. So just sending someone love and light, it physically doesn't do anything. Like even with saying like thoughts and prayers, like you need physical action. If you really want this positivity, then we as a whole collective need to be working towards it. It's just another way of saying, I don't want to hear what you have to say. What's dangerous about it, in my opinion, is that it's also disguised as like, I want to rise above this, like I am above this. And so, you know, like people talk about like having like higher vibes, like sending out higher vibes. And that is not what this is. The conversation isn't relevant because the reality is that we have a lot of work to do when it comes to racism and abolishing the systems that uphold it. And so saying that, like, I just don't see that and that, you know, we're going to figure this out with some love and light is, like you said, literally doing nothing. If you're wondering how to move forward at this point, you have a lot of options. There are ample resources out there from books, articles, films, podcasts and more. The key, Jamie says, rests in finding what methods and teachers are most effective for you and taking ownership of your actions. So when it comes to 
doing this type of work, I highly recommend following preferably activists who are doing this type of work, not just internally, but externally as well. And I recommend trying to find your learning type, because this is something else that we faced recently this week, where someone was in our DM saying that our style of speaking with people turned them off of learning anti-racism for two years, which first off is their responsibility. But like, we know that we're not everyone's cup of tea. We're really blunt. Like you come to our page and we'll be like, hey, great, you're starting anti-racism work you're late. (laughs) So there's a lot of different kinds of people out there that are doing this type of work that some will constantly challenge you and frequently make you feel uncomfortable. Some will hold your hand every step of the way. And when I was beginning this work, like my own personal anti-racism work, I started following a lot of people that were the hand-holdy type. And it wasn't motivating me to act, which was not their responsibility. It was entirely my own responsibility. But the handholdy stuff wasn't enough for me. And it wasn't until I found activists that like were really making me feel uncomfortable frequently and constantly having me check myself and think about super uncomfortable things that I've never addressed within myself and around myself before. That's when I really started getting to work. So not everyone will be your cup of tea, but look through all of them until you find whatever motivates you to get the work done is most important. And also, like, it's your responsibility to get this work done. And then also, I wanted to add that you should never go into the DMs of a Black woman, uh, really a Black person in general, and ask them questions. That is a lot of labor on their shoulders. They're already dealing with systemic racism left and right. And everything that's all over the news 24-7 while probably also doing work within this Black Lives Matter movement to some degree And then they have to deal with people going, oh, well, what do I do? Like nine times out of 10, if you are contacting an activist asking what your next step should be, that probably means you have internet access. So you could just copy and paste what you were about to send them and put it into Google. And I'm speaking for experience, you will find answers. And if you insist on asking them questions, you always, always, always pay them. If you go to college, you pay for it. If you go to take a seminar, you pay for it. So when someone is teaching you, especially when it comes to traumatic labor on their end, pay them double. (laughs) Firstly, I appreciate that you use the word motivate when it comes to finding educators online or otherwise. Like we've been saying for this entire episode, this work is inherently uncomfortable. And when you have white privilege, there's a specific kind of discomfort that comes with that. And what we all need is to find education that motivates and then to follow through with that motivation into action. And secondly, to what you said about, you know, paying educators who are online, I think for some folks who are just beginning this work and seeing people online who they've known as influencers or photographers or just travelers with blogs saying, hey, I'm doing work. And if you're consuming this work and learning from it, I'm requesting that you pay me if you can or find other ways to support my work. But primarily, if you have the means, pay me. For anyone out there who's confused by that, I want to remind you that you are opting in to learn through Instagram. 
there are a lot of different ways that you can learn. And if you're consuming content on Instagram that you're learning from, just as if you would buy a book or a course, or like you said, go to college, you need to pay for that content. That's content that you're benefiting from, that we're all benefiting from, that took a lot of time and emotional labor to put out there. So it does have a value and it does need to be paid for. When it comes to some like practices for lifelong learning or for making this more sustainable, you know, we've talked a lot this week online about performative allyship versus like long-term sustainable allyship and the difference and what I ended up chatting with a friend with about the other day because she was like, I don't really know if what I'm doing is performative. And I was like, if you're not acting today or have like have systems in place that you continually act, then what you did yesterday was performative. If you have no intentions of following through or if you don't set up a system for yourself so that you are continually learning and exposing yourself to resources or content or ways to act that is rooted in anti-racism work, then yes, whether you intend to or not, what you did last week was performative formative because you felt uncomfortable and like you had a thought that it would be great but you actually aren't going to follow through with continuing to learn so I was wondering I I have a few ideas on some things that I've either done or I'm going to be trying to incorporate more into my regular practices so that I know that I'm intentionally developing sustainable habits around practicing allyship in anti-racism work but I was curious to hear from you first if you have any tips or things that have worked well for you with the help from Naomi from Irie to Aurora, I started the Diversify Van Life Book Club. And I don't know if this sounds selfish, but one of the main reasons I wanted to personally lead it is because it would force me to read these books. I was worried if someone else was leading it, then I might skim a book or I might be like, well, I'll read the discussion questions and I'll, I'll go back to the chapter when I get to it or whatever. But I knew that if I was personally in charge of it, then I was obligated to read it. I had to read it. It had to be done by this time. And I was going to make these discussion questions or whatever. So I really had to make sure I understood what I was reading too. Um, so I do recommend if you're in, like, first of all, I recommend joining the book club, but I also recommend to start these book clubs. And it's one thing for me to like put a goal of like, I'm going to finish a book by this time. But it's another for me to be like, I need to be able to discuss, like lead a discussion of this with other people, which really has helped me not just read a book, but really dive into the books. Um, that's probably been a really beneficial thing that I've done. Just another great tip in like figuring out what should I do next, turn to these activists and just see what they're telling you to do and do it. Sign this petition, call this number, you know, read this article etc. Listen to this podcast, etc, etc. And then I also wanted to make a note on allyship. Us as white people, we should never call ourselves allies. That is not a self-proclaimed title. That is a gift that is given to us. But that is also like, not the goal. The goal is not to be called an ally. The goal is to be an ally. We are not in the role to give that title to ourselves or other white people. That is the role of the people we are trying to be allies for to say if we are an ally or not. I think that that's great. And I love that you suggested like anyone can do that. You know, anyone can join the Diversify Van Life Book Club, which is great. And also anyone can lead a small group if it's a group full of individuals that all want to learn. And I've also been practicing having a lot of conversations with family members, which 
you know, we all have like friends and family members who are not on the same page of wanting to practice anti-racism work or practice better allyship. And so having those conversations is really important. And there are a lot of resources online. I will I will link one in our show notes that resonated with me. And I know you had shared it. A few other people have shared it. It's by um, Generous on Instagram. And she has some very practical, very useful tips for talking to friends and family about racism. And it's not a one-shot thing. I went into a conversation with family that I've had lots of failed conversations before where it just hasn't gone anywhere. And I was like, I'm going to look at this as a practice. And like, I'd like to exit this conversation, leaving the door open for more because this is a long-term thing. And as soon as I changed that mindset and said, this is a practice and this is long-term, the conversation took a shift that I think was really productive. So Having conversations is good and having them in in the long term and having them on an ongoing basis is good. And something else that comes up a lot, too, I think, especially for folks on the road, we have some Road Tip Tuesday content out this week about how to make sure that you're able to vote if you either don't have a permanent address or if you are just getting registered in a new state because maybe you're more stationary this year. And so making sure that you are registered and knowledgeable on the impacts of local elections. I know that federal elections get a lot of attention for a very good reason. And I think we've also seen this week the impact of knowing who's on your council, knowing who your representatives are, and knowing who your mayor is or the governor is really important too. In wrapping up our conversation, Jamie had some parting words for anyone wondering if now is a good time to get involved in anti-racism work. You have no reason to not do this work at this point, especially now there's so many resources out there from articles to books to podcasts to documentaries and movies and songs and all different kinds of things that can explain exactly what questions you have on them. There's endless things. Just Google it. If you have a question, nine times out of 10, you will get an answer that explains it. And even if you take the slightest step on the path of anti-racism work, and you choose to stop, like that is a dangerously wrong decision to make. You can't turn away from this work once you've started. And you're just going to have to commit to the discomfort. I I did also want to add to that find balance, which this is not giving you permission to give up or take long breaks or anything like that. But burnout is real. And this is really trialing work. There's a lot of emotions in this. There's a lot of education in this, which can be exhausting. But finding time for self-care is not permission for you to stop long-term. Thank you so much to Jamie Serbell for joining me in this incredibly honest and important conversation. You can find Jamie on Instagram at nomad underscore home. And to see more incredible van life content that aims to support learning and representation in the realm of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, head to diversify.vanlife on Instagram or join the book club Jamie Leads at Diversify Van Life Book Club. Also, just a reminder that we loaded our show notes with resources for you to begin or bolster your anti-racism work with, primarily from Black authors and creators. Follow them online, buy their materials, share their work with your communities, and pay them for their time. We'll see you next week. So in the meantime, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen. It's a free, fast way to support the show, and it truly does make a difference in helping other people find us. And if you're wanting to interact with more of this amazing community, make sure to find us on social media. 
We're on Instagram at Women on the Road and on Facebook, including our Facebook group for community questions, stories, and support, which you can find by searching for Women on the Road Podcast. Thanks again to our sponsors, Danner and BetterHelp. Music is by Jason Shaw and Josh Woodward. Women on the Road is a production of Ravel Creative. Until next time, we're hoping you're all safe and healthy out there.